the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers, and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome to the Tuesday edition of Dan Proft Show. Thank you for joining us again. Follow us at danproftshow.com, on social media at Dan Proft Show, as well as at Dan Proft present in Ohio, rallying supporters yesterday. And picking up on what uh, Speaker Pelosi had to say on Stephanopoulos' show over the weekend about uh, this quiver that she has with a bunch of arrows in it. One may include impeachment. Now they want to impeach me again if I nominate somebody as I'm constitutionally obligated to do to serve on the Supreme Court of the United States. Go ahead. And I want them. I want them to do that. I want them to do that. We will. We will. Mm-hmm. It doesn't seem to be very persuasive, understandably, with the president, but also with even the the, the electorally concerned Republican Senate. Uh, Cory Gardner, who's a Colorado Republican running in a uh, tight, hotly contested reelection campaign, tweeted out uh, yesterday, when a president exercises constitutional authority to nominate a judge for the Supreme Court vacancy, the Senate must decide how to best fulfill its constitutional duty of advice and consent. I have and will continue to support judicial nominees who will protect our Constitution, not legislate from the bench and uphold the law. Should a qualified nominee who meets this criteria be put forward, I will vote to confirm. That's a long way of saying he's on board. Uh, Mitt Romney, despite his antipathy toward the president, also on board to consider a nominee. He announced today if and when one is put forward, which it will be put forward this coming weekend, as the president has said. Something else to note that these senators perhaps are taking advice and consent on which is uh, taking advice and giving their consent, the advice coming from, for example, Kim Strassel over at The Wall Street Journal. Democrats will take every media outlet to claim it will be politically dangerous for GOP senators to move a nominee. The exact opposite is true. In 2018, four D senators lost their seats for opposing Kavanaugh. Heitkamp, Donnelly, McCaskill, Nelson. North Dakota, Indiana, Missouri, Florida. There you go. And that's consistent with what Quinn Hillier from The Examiner told us yesterday in his 20 years of looking at these issues of Supreme Court vacancies and election years and how they impact the electorate. They tend to be a net positive for conservatives who are additionally motivated to turn out to support candidate who has that uh, who they're reminded of has this nomination power because of the importance they place on the judiciary. For more on this topic, as well as how it may be displacing other topics like violence on the streets of America, at least temporarily, pleased to be joined by Dan Henninger, deputy editor of The Wall Street Journal's editorial page. Dan, thanks for joining us again. Appreciate it. Good to be with you, Dan. I, I know you've written about uh, Democrat madness as it pertains to uh, law and order, but if you'll indulge us momentarily, uh, does that madness also, as evinced from uh, AOC, who suggested this is an opportunity to radicalize yourself, does that madness also um, permeate their position on replacing Ruth Bader Ginsburg? Well, it does. It's a different kind of madness, but it is a madness that has been going on for 
a very long time, for decades. And the issue is really um, judicial activism, quite frankly. And I think this is a subject that very much deserves to be part of what's left of this presidential election, 42 or 43 days as of yesterday, I guess. And the debate next Tuesday night, we'll see the extent to which Joe Biden is willing to talk about the Supreme Court nomination, other than to say that uh, it should be put off. I think Joe Biden should be pressed to talk about the relevance of the Supreme Court. My point is that, as you were just, or Dan, I'm sorry, as you were just suggesting, it has always been relevant for conservatives and Republicans. It has been a voting issue for them, the uh, status of the courts. But interestingly enough, Democrats, including presidential candidates, by and large have avoided talking about the Supreme Court and the courts. Hillary Clinton didn't really talk about it much when she was running. And you have to ask yourself, why is that? And I think the reason is that uh, they would just as soon not have the American people focus, voters focus on what has become of the judicial system and the courts, which is to say that to a great extent, many courts uh, have become parallel legislatures because democratic liberalism has gradually over the years moved further and further left. We know where it is now. I mean, it's kind of like the Biden, Sanders, Warren, Ocasio-Cortez candidacy. Because it has moved further left, it has become more difficult for them to get their policies through legislatures. We know that's true of the U.S. Congress. Uh, It has become increasingly true of state legislatures and let the Democrats completely control their legislatures, as in states like New York, Illinois, and California. But frustrated at the inability to get what they want through normal politics, elected representatives standing up, arguing, debating the issues, unable to do that, they've turned to the courts. And the courts, going back to Roe v. Wade and the idea of unenumerated rights, rights that aren't literally listed in the Constitution, but that deserve validation, uh, they have achieved many of these goals through the courts. I think we've reached the point now where they're at the outer limits of this strategy. It is indeed a radical strategy. So the idea of whether judicial activism should be allowed to continue unfettered, as it undoubtedly would under a Biden presidency or not, is something that should be put before the American people. And it should be put before the American people in the substance of uh, this Supreme Court nomination. Yeah, it's interesting you make the point, right? They don't talk about it, so why don't they want to talk about it? And so thinking about this case study here, why don't they want to see a nominee put forward? Obviously, one reason is they want Joe Biden to make this selection. But even beyond that, it seems to me that uh, maybe some of the more sensible operatives who have a bit bit of a better handle on the temperature of the electorate than some of their most leftist colleagues, maybe they don't want to see what happened at the Kavanaugh hearing repeat itself and repeat itself in the direction of a a much more sympathetic candidate, perhaps a nominee, perhaps like Amy Coney Baird. Maybe they don't want to see DiFi have another the dogma lives loudly within you moment before the election. Yeah, another religious test to alienate Catholics just before the election probably is not what they want. And I suspect uh, Senator Feinstein isn't going to go down that path again. But just to to return to the idea of a radicalized Democratic Party, there is simply the the issue uh, of what many of them have been proposing right now, frustrated again at their inability to have now the courts do what they want. They're actively proposing uh, that if they gain control, uh, 
if, if the president goes ahead with the nomination and if they gain control of the Senate and the White House, that they pack the court, increase the seats from uh, two more or even four more seats uh, so that they could uh, unbalance the court. But there's one other thing that you see floating around in the background that I deserves more that I think deserves more attention. And that is the suggestion by these same Democrats that they also admit the District of Columbia and Puerto Rico as states, Mm -hmm. effectively packing the Senate. Right, Dan? Two senators from each state and an automatic four Democratic votes. Uh, They might even go beyond that. And the idea that the Democrats are going to so unbalance the American system, I think would strike a lot of independent voters as unacceptable. I mean, people are independent voters by and large because they think there should be a balance between these competing forces. And a lot of these Democrats are on record now as uh, being in favor of completely unbalancing and disrupting the uh, system of checks and balances that we have um, had for decades and decades under the U.S. political system. Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's an excellent point. And, and the PR, uh, the Puerto Rico and, and D.C. statehood piece of it, you're right, doesn't get enough attention in, in the context of eliminate the Electoral College, pack the courts, D.C. and Puerto Rico statehood. This whole idea that was played out in actually one of these war games by this uh, left uh, Operation Transition uh, Integrity Project, where uh, they play out a scenario in which John Podesta, uh, acting on behalf of the Biden campaign, won't accept that uh, Trump is going to uh, won't accept the Trump reelection without trying to extract all of these concessions in order to relent and allow Trump to uh, serve his second term without uh, secession, actually trying to get the governors of Western states actually threaten secession unless they get those three things I just mentioned. And one of which you were you were uh, uh, putting front and center. Well, as I suggested in my column this week, Democratic madness, I do think that among many Democrats and certainly among professional Democrats, their antipathy, their animosity towards Donald Trump is so intense that it is really indeed reached the level of a neurosis. And they are willing to do virtually anything to prevent him from serving a second term. And I don't have the slightest doubt with the problems we're having with mail-in ballots that um, if five or six of these uh, battleground states are close in Trump's favor, that we are going to have court challenges for a very long time challenging the legitimacy of Trump's victory. After all, they have challenged the legitimacy of this presidency every day for the last four years. Why should anything change now? I I want to pick up on that point and and delve into your column a little bit more, particularly as it pertains to violence, uh, which is still going to be a central issue in this campaign. It's currently overshadowed a bit by the Supreme Court vacancy, of course, but it won't be for the next six weeks. That's for sure. More with Dan Henninger, deputy editor of the Wall Street Journal's editorial page. Exposing political fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the show. We're speaking with Dan Henninger, the deputy editor of the Wall Street Journal's editorial page about Democrat madness, which is the title of his column this week. And uh, your editorial page, uh, Dan, has also opined on uh, the election. Some of the madness includes uh, trying to uh, 
extend out the count for as long as may be necessary to get to the count you want. And we see this playing out in states like Michigan, like Pennsylvania, uh, like Wisconsin, where you have judges intervening to uh, extend out uh, the deadlines and the uh, both for uh, receiving mail-in ballots as well as for counting them and and all of the potential uh, controversy that could uh, engender. Yeah, there's no question. I mean, it's striking that we've now had these judges extending the deadlines out six days. I think in Michigan that's even 14 days. It, I, you know, it's it's amazing to me, Dan, that, that more people at senior levels of uh, of our politics are not screaming bloody murder about this mail-in problem because it just looks to me like a, a train, tra- you know, a train wreck almost inevitably is going to happen. And that's one of the reasons I, frankly, am in favor of getting this uh, Supreme Court nomination done before the election, because we're going to have a challenge to the election results one way or another uh, that's really going to test our system. And why have a uh, Supreme Court nomination uh, in the middle of that as well? I think we might as well get that behind us and uh, see what left in the stress test of the American political system to deal with the mess that's going to occur after the election. Um, the other aspect of, of the madness that you opine on is, uh, as it pertains to violence on America's streets, big cities and not so big cities. Minneapolis reporting that uh, uh, its number of violent crimes is up 17 percent from the previous five-year average for this period of the year. Uh, St. Louis Post-Dispatch reporting amid, quote-unquote, indescribable times, St. Louis homicide rate reaches historic levels. In my home city of Chicago, you have a 50 percent year-over-year increase in murders and shootings. And, of course, we know uh, well, everybody seems to know well what's happening in places like Portland and Seattle, and to the uh, response of violence in the streets and the the lawlessness, the mob taking over, Portland Mayor Ted Wheeler is focused on encouraging Portlanders to dim or turn off their lights for Lights Out Portland, because light pollution can be harmful to humans, plants, and other animals, including birds who are beginning their migration. There's uh, your Democrat Socialist uh, hierarchy of priorities. Yes, it's, um, as I said in the column, it's insane. What What other word? Uh, can you think of or describe something like uh, like what Ted Wheeler just suggested? But I think the problem is deeper than that. I mean, let's start as the baseline here, the reality that uh, the Democratic Convention across four days in July, uh, even well into uh, all of these incidents that you described, uh, crime reports happening, at that convention, they did not... Um, mention any of it. Now, uh, the expectation was they could skirt by it, um, that law and order was not going to rise to the level of a significant issue in the presidential campaign. But now we see here just in the past week, the Monmouth poll has discovered that 65% of their respondents say law and order is an issue. The more interesting metric in that poll, Dan, was that 60% of blacks and almost 60% of Hispanics uh, thought that law and order had become an issue. And why should they? They're living in the neighborhoods. Yeah. This, uh, killing is going on. Why is this happening? And I think it's not just happening because of May 25th and uh, George Floyd. It's happening because of a uh, theory that uh, the Democrats and Democratic legal theorists and prosecutors uh, 
put forward called decriminalization, uh, that there were too many arrests and incarcerations in the inner city, and so to reduce incarcerations, define crime down, and redefine the police function. Uh, so you've got a progressive prosecutor in uh, Chicago. We have them here in Queens, New York, San Francisco, Portland, Seattle, Orlando, Boston, uh, Philadelphia especially. Uh, these uh, progressive decriminalization theories have been put in place over the last several years. And when you added to that what was going on after May 25th and the fact that prosecutors uh, often would not support the police, but in fact would cite the police themselves for acts of violence during these demonstrations, the police pulled back even further than they had pulled back under the uh, progressive prosecutors' regimes. And now we're seeing this extraordinary spike in uh, crime and violence, which brings me back to the Democratic Convention, which is that that decision, not to mention any of this uh, at their convention, was not merely uh, political, but it was a conscious ideological choice. This is what they believe. And now we're getting a demonstration effect uh, at this very time of the aggressive policing model and what it does to our cities. And the, the result has really been quite catastrophic. So I think this is, in, it, it's faded a little bit in the last week because of the Supreme Court, but I think the law and order issue is now front and center as a uh, presidential campaign issue. Well, and it's also because of the stark contrast, isn't it, uh, with uh, the Department of Justice and the president uh, launching this Operation Legend program to do at the local level what, uh, as you were mentioning, many of these prosecutors don't want to do, which is to prosecute violent felons uh, and violent crime. Uh, In addition to that, the Justice Department uh, announcing New York City Portland and Seattle are, quote, anarchist jurisdictions, unquote, under guidelines the president issued earlier this month and uh, and thus subject to having uh, funding, federal funding pulled in various areas for their cities, um, uh, you know, attaching their conduct to federal purse strings. Now, of course, Andrew Cuomo is uh, is screaming bloody murder over this, but uh, uh, but nonetheless, Trump and, and, and Barr and the administration are presenting a real choice for the electorate. Yeah, they are. And um, Bill Barr, uh, in, in uh, making these announcements, it did assert that uh, protecting cities, uh, providing security, is among the most uh, uh, basic functions of government, right? Uh, absent that, uh, one gets crime. And... Um, it's on that for that reason he's suggesting and they're announcing are going to <coughs> excuse me withhold federal funding to cities that uh, won't provide the most basic uh, levels of safety for their citizens. And you know, Dan, the the most you have to laugh to keep from crying. But the most incredible demonstration of this, as you know, is Minneapolis City Council there several weeks ago voted to defund the police. And now in the past week, those same city council members are demanding that right. the police come into their neighborhoods overrun with crime and stop it. Yeah. Uh, what more does one need to know uh, about this subject than um, the purveyors of it pleading for help? I, I guess we're going to find out on November 3rd or at some point after November 3rd. But we're going to find out uh, the answer to that question. You're right. Uh, Dan Henninger, deputy editor of The Wall Street Journal's editorial page. Be sure to check out his excellent piece, Democrat Madness, which I'll tweet out at Dan Prof Show. Dan Henninger, thanks for joining us again. Appreciate it. Good to be with you, Dan.
All right, uh, we're going to switch gears after the break. Uh, Dr. Joel Zinberg from uh, Mount Sinai Hospital in New York is going to join us to try to answer the question, what the hell is wrong with the CDC and do they need a new webmaster? That's coming up. Show.com. Welcome back to the program, and uh, it's just incredible, the Centers for Disease Control, the CDC's uh, performance, their um, ever-evolving positions on COVID-related issues. AP reporting, top U.S. public health agency stirred confusion by posting and then taking down an apparent change in its position on how easily the coronavirus can spread from person to person through the air. It can uh, spread through particulate matter in the air. I'm sorry, no, it can't. It's still uh, droplets. Something as important as transmission. Do they have a copy editor over at uh, CDC? For more and uh, a range of other matters, COVID-related, we're pleased to be joined again by Dr. Joel Zinberg, Senior Fellow at the Competitive Enterprise Institute in Washington, D.C., Associate Clinical Professor of Surgery at Mount Sinai Hospital in New York. Professor Zinberg, thanks for joining us. I mean, what the hell is wrong with CDC? (laughs) That's a good question. I don't know the answer. I suspect, like a lot of things in Washington these days, there are leaks and the premature publications that are unintended, unfortunately, probably in some cases intended, and they're not exactly covering themselves in glory here. Right. I mean, and this, again, is just, as you well know, on uh, a number of matters that are now, that were once dismissed and are now gospel, masks being the most obvious. Once uh, it was uh, healthy people don't need to wear them, says CDC, says Redfield, says Fauci. Now, uh, Redfield is testifying before Congress saying that masks are more effective than a vaccine, for all, uh, among all things. I mean, this is where people lose faith in experts, uh, re- reputed experts, when they start turning into politicians, as Redfield seems to be turning into. Well, you know, the problem is the cry among certain people in our society and in academia is follow the science, but the science is evolving. Things that were once gospel, as you pointed out, about masks and distancing now have completely reversed. And people are being chastised because they didn't know four months ago when the experts were telling them that these things weren't important. They didn't know that they were important because the experts now say they are important. So, you know, unfortunately, a lot of this stuff is being used for political purposes, trying to make the administration look bad. And in fact, I think the administration has made a good faith effort, not not perfect, but a good faith effort to follow their expert opinion. In uh, across the pond there in Sweden, uh, a uh, infectious disease expert, Professor Kim Sneppen at the Niels Bohr Institute in Copenhagen, concluded that Sweden might be beating the pandemic. He's saying there's some evidence that Swedes have built up a degree of immunity to the virus, which, along with what else they're doing to stop the spread, is enough to control the virus. Perhaps, perhaps the epidemic is over there. Is that, um, you know, one one of those uh, qualified predictions that uh, should be uh, thoughtfully considered at this stage yet? Well, I think it has to be thoughtfully considered because what the Swedes did was they said, we're not going to lock down our entire society and our entire economy. We're going to try to take certain mitigation measures to protect vulnerable people, and we're going to rely on individuals to do the right thing. 
and initially they appear to have relatively high rates of mortality. But what I think he was referring to is that now cases are rising throughout Europe with one exception, Sweden. The Swedes have done something right in that regard. They've allowed their society to go forward. Their economy was not hit nearly as badly as their neighbors. And we're not going to know until several months down or maybe years down the line which was the best approach. In other words, the, the, the neighboring countries, Norway, Denmark, Finland, and many of the other European nations may end up having more deaths per capita than Sweden did because of the differing approaches. We just don't know yet, but it's, it's certainly not the case that Sweden was some crazy, callous approach that, that unnecessarily killed people. And, uh, I mean, the great irony this week of uh, Boris Johnson in the U.K. announcing effectively a renewed lockdown while the week prior Sweden was taken off the U.K.'s coronavirus quarantine list as a country you must quarantine for 14 days if you visit. <laughs> right, right. There's a lot of irony packed into that statement. Right. Now, we're going to we're going to see how how this all plays out. But I think the the problem that it, it highlights is that it's not just simply the spread of the virus and the number of people who become ill from from the virus and, you know, ill with the disease COVID-19 and, and, and sadly die from the disease. There are other considerations. Uh, and that's what I recently wrote about when I was discussing uh, 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 how Scott Atlas, who's a, a renowned neuroradiologist who about a month ago joined the coronavirus task force, has been treated. He, and as I and others have done, is calling for a consideration of balancing how you deal with decreasing the spread of the virus, decreasing illness, with other problems that lockdown measures take. And I want to pick up our conversation on Dr. Scott Atlas and the treatment he's receiving per the uh, questions or suggestions he's raising. More with Dr. Joel Zinberg, Senior Fellow at the Competitive Enterprise Institute in D.C., Associate Clinical Professor of Surgery at Mount Sinai in New York. We'll be back right after this. Listen, the more you'll know, this is, this is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the show. We're speaking with Dr. Joel Zinberg. He is a senior fellow at the Competitive Enterprise Institute in D.C. and associate clinical professor of surgery at the Mount Sinai Hospital in New York. And before the break, we were talking about Dr. Scott Atlas, the former head of neuroradiology at Stanford Medical Center, who joined the Presence COVID-19 Response Task Force and is being pilloried in the press because he's not as deft at uh, being on all sides of uh, all issues the way that some more seasoned uh, public health professionals, I won't name names, inside the Beltway. We've had Dr. Atlas on this show many times, and he's saying the same things now that he was saying prior to, just based on what we see on the ground, starting with K-12 through education. It's remarkable to me that that's specifically, Dr. Zinberg, because you have this consensus. Dr. Fauci said so. Dr. Redfield said so. 
that kids should be in school, that the cost for not having in-person learning for young kids is too much of a cost to bear relative to the coronavirus risk it poses to them. And yet in big cities, that isn't the case. And this continues to be a real point of contention between obviously large segments of the population, like the 50 million families with kids in public schools around the country. And it's not just those folks. The American Academy of Pediatrics yeah. published a position statement several weeks back saying that kids ought to be in school. And what they were doing was they were considering, number one, the low risk of infection and serious illness in school-age kids. And they were also, on the other hand, pointing out that there's a tremendous risk of social and economic and educational development being retarded by kids being kept out of school. I mean, the reality is there's a lot of research indicating that kids suffer in their educational development, in their psychological development, and in their lifetime earnings when they're kept out of school. And so when the American Academy of Pediatrics and and I and Dr. Atlas and a host of other people write about this, we shouldn't be condemned either by the press or, as was the case for Dr. Atlas, by some of his colleagues at the Stanford Medical School is somehow being irresponsible. Yeah, and I I think most laymen read that as, oh, it's just politics again. Uh, Now politics has infected medicine, infected science. So some people like Trump over at Stanford and some people don't. And if Scott Atlas is going to be aligned with Trump, then now he's not a good doctor anymore. Even even though he's the head of neuroradiology at Stanford Medical Center, even though he's our colleague, now he's a bad guy. Well, I mean, it's not just some people. I think overwhelmingly in academia, there's a certain political bias and a certain slant. And anyone who who makes any attempt to work with or for the Trump administration and try to propose rational policies uh, that will safely reopen the economy is going to be pilloried. And that's exactly what happened there. You had 98 of his colleagues signing a letter that they then circulated as an open letter to their colleagues, condemning him for some unknown falsehoods. They didn't cite any specific articles. They didn't cite any specific speeches he had given. They just made the sort of vague defamatory claim that he's uttering falsehoods and not only uttering them, but that he may be deliberately misrepresenting the science. But if on close examination, the things they're complaining about are just not true. He didn't say them. And on some of the things they're saying as, as somehow inaccurate, state, as uh, inaccurate not following the science statements are in fact true statements. The uh, the headlines today uh, in the, the D.C. press corps and their regional outlets uh, is a 15 percent spike in cases nationally. Uh, 20, I think it's 29 states uh, seeing an increase in cases. And this is, uh, you know, this is just the, the shifting of the goalposts saying it's not about hospitalizations. It's not about deaths. It's not about even illness. It's just about uh, case numbers. And uh, I, I don't know how you combat this with the uh, with these individuals that uh, are, are doing exactly what I said, shifting the measurements by which we make decisions. I mean, maybe we should just say, what, what, what is it that you want? Do, do you want to do the Zika manual approach, which is shut down the country, national lockdown for 18 months or until there's zero cases, zero COVID cases anywhere? Is that what just tell us what you want? It seems like we need to get people on the record uh, as to what they're uh, alternative is versus this, uh, you know, spike in cases and, and the sort of day-to-day hysteria without any measurement about how we re-enter something approaching living life again fully. Right. No, I mean, look, the reality is you are never going to have zero new cases 
until you get a vaccine or until you reach a sufficient number of people infected so that you get herd immunity through that natural uh, mechanism. But it's much more likely that it's going to happen with a vaccine. But that's not going to happen perhaps for months or more. So to, to advance this notion that, you know, any new case of, of COVID-19 is a, an abject failure is just crazy. And it, it ignores the impact that it has on the rest of society. So when, when doc, people like Dr. Atlas and myself write that, why don't we focus on the uh, people who are most vulnerable to disease, that we, it's, we have a very clearly defined group of people who we know get severe illness, we know are at risk of death. It's the elderly, it's the people with multiple medical problems. 92% of the deaths in this country are people over age 50, and nearly all of them have multiple medical problems. We ought to be concentrating on protecting them from infection and illness instead of holding kids out of school. And, and, and also, too, in terms of uh, returning kids to school or people returning to work or returning to patronize a particular business, you know, can we also start being a little bit more honest? Shouldn't we start being a little bit more honest about this uh, COVID-19 safety theater that we're doing with these uh, infrared temperature checks that uh, medical professor after medical professor says is, is irrelevant to whether or not somebody's infected? Well, it's not irrelevant, but it is certainly not a good screen because we know that half of people, more or less, are asymptomatic. And among the remaining people who are symptomatic, the symptoms are often mild. Now, it's good to know if someone has a high fever when they're coming into your restaurant, you know, they ought to, they ought to leave because they may very well be sick. But the fact that they don't have a fever doesn't exclude the possibility that they're infected. Well, and, 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 and just on the, the American Academy of Pediatrics, again, their guidance on school reopenings does not recommend universal temperature checks. Yeah. No, I mean, the, the problem with the temperature checks is that it not terribly sensitive finding disease that you know you can do it but there are a whole host of things that give you a temperature that maybe a kid ought to not be in school for they could have a simple flu they could have a cold that's going to infect their classmates they can have all sorts of things that you would want to send the kid home for but to think that it is the sole measure uh for COVID 19 it would be inaccurate he is Dr. Joel Zinberg, Senior Fellow at the Competitive Enterprise Institute in D.C. and Associate Clinical Professor of Surgery at the Mount Sinai Hospital in New York. Dr. Zinberg, thanks for joining us again. Appreciate it. Oh, my pleasure. Take care. Dan Proft Show on the Salem Radio Network. Welcome back to the show. And uh, Joe Biden, uh, he has been forced out of his basement. And uh, he's not faring too well in terms of... um, the gaffes and the concerns raised by his performances in public. Uh, we played uh, one yesterday. This is uh, Joe Biden in advance of his response on point to the Ruth Bader Ginsburg, Ruth Bader Ginsburg vacancy and President Trump's commitment to go forward with the nominee, McConnell's commitment to go forward with a floor vote on that nominee. But before he got to that, he was talking about COVID and he said this. 
And perhaps, most cruelly of all, if Donald Trump has his way, the complications from COVID-19, which are well beyond what they should be. It's estimated that 200 million people have died, probably by the time I finish this talk. Thankfully, nearly two thirds of Americans did not die by the time he finished that talk on Sunday. But uh, even there, didn't catch this yesterday in Philadelphia at Constitution Center. Joe Biden just getting to the podium to deliver his remarks. Listen to him. Good afternoon. Welcome to the nation's Constitution Center. I had the great privilege of being uh, the guest leader of this outfit for a year. <clears throat> it's an appropriate place to make the speech I'm about to make. Now, catch your breath. You sound like uh, Michael Moore when he fails to catch the ice cream truck. Uh, so that's Joe Biden on Sunday. But uh, more Joe Biden. Joe Biden uh, in an interview with Telemundo talking about uh, his proposal for a moratorium for the first 100 days of his administration on deportations. 100 days, uh, 100-day moratorium for deportations. Reciting his lines. There are going to be no deportations in the first 100 days of my campaign. Let me get that right. You are going to freeze deportations? Freeze deportations for the first 100 days. And the only people will be deported are people who committed a felony while here. That's number one. I, okay, I lost that. Line. Yeah, well, it's, but that's line. good. We could, we could talk to you and I on that. Okay. Uh, but but, it's, <clears throat> but, but th- think about Think about where we are today. There were more than- yeah, I'm thinking about it. Line. Is it summer stock? I, I lost that line. What could that possibly be in reference to other than reading prepared answers? And a Telemundo reporter going along with that. We can talk about that later. Remarkable. And then Joe Biden giving us the Biden version of the Pledge of Allegiance in Wisconsin. America, I pledge allegiance to the United States of America. One nation. Indivisible. Under God. For real. You know, for <laughs> under God. For real. You know, indivisible. You, you know the thing. America with the divis- indivisibility and uh, under God. For real, man. Come on, man. This is Dan Proft. This is the Dan Proft Show. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft. And this is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome to another edition of the Dan Proft Show. Thank you so much for joining us. You can follow us, danproftshow.com. That is the website. You also find podcasts there, as you do on Spotify and iTunes, Twitter, at Dan Proft and at Dan Proft Show. There will be a floor vote on the Supreme Court nominee for the election. In 2014, the voters elected our majority because we pledged to check and balance a second lame duck president. Two years later, we kept our word. In 2018, the voters grew that majority on our pledge to continue working with President Trump, most especially on his outstanding judicial appointments. We're going to keep our word once again. We're going to vote on this nomination 
on this floor. We're going to vote on this nomination on this floor. And I added uh, before the election because it better be and I think it will be. And that must be good news to uh, the ears of one Andrew Cuomo. Because back in February of 2016, he offered this reflection as only America's governor can do. Justice Scalia believed first and foremost in the Constitution of the United States. Nowhere in the Constitution does it say the president or the U.S. Senate should put aside these responsibilities because of politics or a presidential election. And we cannot let partisan bickering cripple the nation's highest court. Washington gridlock has already succeeded in largely immobilizing the legislative and executive branches of our federal government. To allow it to now paralyze the judicial branch in defiance of the U.S. Constitution would be a disservice to both parties and Justice Scalia's legacy. And of course, we know there is no more sincere guarantor of Justice Scalia's legacy than one Andrew Cuomo, the governor of New York. This is how cynical and patronizing and transparent the left is when it comes to politics in general, which is all you see playing out now. I mean, witness Joe Biden on Sunday from Philadelphia, aghast that power is being exercised in the political arena. That's the entire purpose of politics, to exercise power consistent with the consent of the governed. There's no point otherwise. Of course, power is being exercised with the consent of the governed. Joe Biden, as Mitch McConnell explained, during his remarks from the Senate yesterday. For more on this, we're pleased to be joined by John Malcolm. He's the vice president for the Institute for Constitutional Government, director of the Mies Center for Legal and Judicial Studies at the Heritage Foundation. John, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. My pleasure. Good to be with you. Good to be with you. Now, I looked at this uh, release that Heritage put out last month, and it was additional picks Trump should consider for the Supreme Court in advance of the new list of conservative Supreme Court nominees that he was going to issue, which he did. But not on that list was Barbara Lagoa on the 11th Circuit and seeming to be one of the finalists or at least one of the final five that Trump is considering. Any uh, particular reason for that? Well, I don't know very much about Barbara Lagoa. She's been a judge actually for a long time. She was appointed by Governor Jeb Bush in 2006 to the bench, but she was appointed to an intermediate appellate court in Florida. None of what I'm about to say is meant to take anything away from her. Right. It was not until January of 2019 that Governor Ron DeSantis named her as a first Cuban-American woman to the Florida Supreme Court, and then she was only on that court for a very short time until she was appointed and confirmed to the 11th Circuit, which just happened last December. So she hasn't issued very many rulings that I'm aware of. The only one that really stands out that I am aware of is that recently the 11th Circuit, which covers Florida, Georgia, and Alabama, the whole court heard a case. And by a six to four vote, they upheld Florida's felon voting law that requires convicted felons to pay all of their fines and restitution, serve their complete sentence before they get their voting rights restored. The chief judge of that court, Bill Pryor, wrote the majority opinion, and Judge Lagoa joined that opinion. There were two other things about that opinion that stood out to Bill Pryor, in addition to writing the majority opinion, wrote a separate concurrence. It was one page in which he said, I know that some of you are thinking we're on the wrong side of history. This is the wrong thing to do. Let me tell you something. I'm a judge. My duty is to apply the law, and that's it, and not to decide whether I'm on the right side or wrong side of history. I thought it was a very bold statement to make. The only other judge on the 11th Circuit to join that opinion was Judge Lagoa. She also wrote her own concurrence, so I thought it was well done. So I just don't know much about her (laughs) at this point. Do you have a favorite from the handful of names that are being bandied about? I think that Amy Coney Barrett is 
spectacular. I mean, she was a Notre Dame law grad, clerk for Lauren Silverman on the D.C. Circuit, Antonin Scalia on the Supreme Court. Brief time in private practice where she worked, among other things, in the Bush v. Gore case. She's been a very distinguished academic for a whole number of years in which she's published in major leading law reviews on a slew of very important topics, including originalism, textualism, the importance of adhering to or occasionally departing from and overturning precedent. She held up as grace under fire during her confirmation hearing in which Diane Feinstein said, for instance, the dogma lives loudly right. in you. She happens to be charming. I've met her. And since 2017, she's written over 100 opinions on the Seventh Circuit, all of which are excellent. None of that is to knock Barbara Lagoa, and it's certainly not meant to knock another person who's a dark horse candidate, Alison Rushing, on the Fourth Circuit, who I think is also superb, mm-hmm. just very young. She's 38 years old. I just don't know enough about Barbara Lagoa, and if she's a nominee, I look forward to learning more about her and why the president thought she ought to get this pick. See, I'm Amy Coney Barrett for two reasons. One is what you just said, and it's something that now Georgetown Law Professor Randy Barnett said to me many moons ago, which is this whole, like, nominate somebody with no record so they can't be attacked. I totally disagree with that. Is to say you should nominate somebody that has a substantial record so you know what they've said before and you have a real idea about what kind of judge they'll be on the high court so that there aren't surprises, as there have been so many surprises, John Roberts, from nominees from particularly Republican presidents, much less so Democrat presidents with the left, but significant surprises with Republican presidents and supposedly originalist jurists. So she has a record that you just described, I think, is a huge advantage. Number one. Number two is because I want DiFi again and the rest of the unhinged left to say you cannot be a Christian and be on the high court, which is essentially their position. One, Randy's a real smart guy, and I agree with him completely. I mean, so I remember when George H.W. Bush was in the White House and Warren Rudman, the senator and John Sununu, his chief of staff, said, listen, our guy, here's the right guy. David Souter. And George H.W. <laughs> Bush said to the American people, conservatives, don't worry, trust me. Didn't work out so well. Right. And then actually when his son, George W. Bush, said, well, I'm going to nominate my White House counsel, Harriet Myers. Don't worry. Just trust me. The conservatives rebelled against that. And I would hope that if Barbara Lagoa is nominated, it's for some reason other than don't worry, trust me. So I agree with that. And, and the Republicans, some of them have been absolute hits. And I could go on from David Souter, John Paul Stevens. You know, not every justice is always going to please you. Neil Gorsuch certainly this past term issued a couple of opinions that surprised and in some senses disappointed. Me, Antonin Scalia, he joined an opinion saying you could burn an American flag and that was protected by the First Amendment. He wrote an opinion that most people think severely watered down the free exercise clause of the First Amendment. So even you know your heroes will occasionally disappoint you, but I agree that to the extent to which you can study a track record and get a sense not only of what this person thinks, but also what their judicial philosophy is, is exactly the right way to go. So Randy's right. I, I want to go back to, though, this attitude that I have. Maybe some don't share. Molan Labe, with respect to Amy Coney Barrett, put her up and tell the Democrat socialists, the Christian bigots in that caucus in the Senate, come and get her. Do your worst. Well, you could say the same thing about Barbara Lagoa, who's also a Catholic. Your characterization of the Democrats as being anti-Christian is yours. One thing that I'll be looking for that will be really, really interesting is one of the people who's going to be doing this questioning is Kamala Harris, who is on the ticket as vice president. And so she was very, very rough on Brett Kavanaugh. 
the Democrats, I think, are going to have to, assuming she gets a hearing and a vote, uh, they're certainly going to have to be a little bit careful about how aggressively they go after either Barbara Legault or Amy Coney Barrett. And I don't think that either one of them will be susceptible to a charge that they tried to rape anybody in high school right. or anything like that. Um, right. So uh, one, one other matter, though, that, that I've even heard from some Republicans, well, maybe maybe you should wait till after the election so that people could say, well, we have to vote for Trump in order to get this nominee, this nominee, nominee through this nomination done. And that happens after the election. I mean, do you see I, I don't see it, but do you see any uh, sense to waiting until after the November 3rd election to move this nomination to a floor vote? If he had decided to do that, I would have understood it, although I would not have been thrilled by it. But he's taken that off the table. He has said mm-hmm. that he's going to nominate somebody and do it now. Now, there have been two Republicans, Lisa Murkowski and Susan Collins, have already said, I'm not going to vote on somebody, or at least I wouldn't vote. They haven't said they, they, that if she brought up that they absolutely won't cast a ballot. But they said, if it were up to me, I would not vote until after the election, then I'd let the winner choose. Uh, you know, if, if one more Republican does that, all of a sudden things become a lot dicier. And if two do that, then the nominee is dead, at least before uh, before the uh, the election. Uh, I will say this. I think that if Trump does get the nominee through and Biden wins, they keep the House and the Democrats take over the Senate. They not only can, they will pack the court. So there is still plenty of incentive if you are a Donald Trump fan or you want to prevent the, the, the court from being packed, you know, to turn out in the polls and cast your ballot. He is John Malcolm, Vice President of the Institute for Constitutional Government, Director of the Mies Center for Legal and Judicial Studies at uh, the Heritage Foundation. John, thanks for joining us. Today. My pleasure. Good to be with you. Exposing political fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the show. We continue our conversation about uh, the Ruth Bader Ginsburg vacancy that uh, we were having with uh, John Malcolm uh, from the Heritage Foundation. Uh, Chris Scalia, Christopher Scalia, one of... Justice Scalia's sons, wrote a piece for Fox News about uh, his dad's relationship with Justice Ginsburg, their much-celebrated friendship that they loved to opera together, their spouses were friends, and so on and so forth. Uh, He recalled something, though, that I hadn't uh, read before. Maybe I had missed it. But uh, on the occasion of Ruth Bader Ginsburg's 10th anniversary on the D.C. Circuit, where they both had served, but now her 10th anniversary, Antonin Scalia was already on the Supreme Court, uh, he... uh, celebrated her 10th anniversary by saying she was the best of colleagues as she is the best of friends. I miss her. And uh, Christopher Scalia say, I imagine that what dad said then is close to what he'd say today were he here to mourn her passing. So it was a, a real friendship. And Scalia, Christopher, that is, you know, offers this review that uh, neither his father nor Ruth Bader Ginsburg changed their votes to please the other or they did they pull any punches when writing differing opinions. Indeed, they're both known for strong dissents. The point is that they didn't let those differing and deeply held convictions undermine their dear friendship. This has already been one of the most difficult and divisive years in living memory with Justice Ginsburg's passing. It will become more so, he writes. Reasonable people of good faith will disagree about important issues. You and your friends will likely have very strong, very different opinions about what course our country should take and who should lead us there. A healthy republic requires citizens to debate those issues forcefully and peacefully. 
A healthy society needed citizens to remember that political disagreement need not turn friends into enemies, and uh, Scalia and Ginsburg being, of course, a quintessential example of that. I, I don't know, though, that uh, that is going to win the day. In fact, I'm a bit cynical that it will. And uh, let me give you a good example of why. This conversation between Fredo and Lamone, and no, it's not a terrible uh, buddy cop film. It is uh, Chris Cuomo and Don Lemon on CNN, you know, doing the throw from one to the other, talking about the vacancy. And I I can't even understand what in God's name the two of them are arguing uh, before uh, Don Lamone delivers the money line. If the Democrats were in control of the Senate right now, and Trump was president, and he wanted to nominate a justice, what do you think they'd say? Well, I think they'd do the same thing they did in 2016. They, they do it. That's, That's what right. they did. That's my point. That's, That's why did. nobody so, cares what the Democrats are saying now. No, 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 no. I think they do exactly what they did in 2016. You can say what you want about Democrats. Democrats usually wet the bed. They're not as strategic you when it comes to politics. You think they give Trump I a justice after I, what happened with Merrick Garland? I think if, they, if yes. I think they abide by, well, it's different because it's different because Democrats did not make the promise. So you keep comparing things that aren't equal. Democrats did not make the same promise in 2016. It wasn't a promise. Democrats were on the other side. They said. It wasn't a promise. Okay. It was a BS All right, semantics to explain what they were doing semantics. to deprive power. Semantics. They didn't allow the, 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 his nominee to go through. They wouldn't even have a hearing. They said, we're not going to do it. So that wasn't Democrats doing that. That was Republicans doing it. And if you come on this side, I don't know what Democrats would do. Democrats back in 2016. It would not mean that they were being hypocritical if they did it. They are being hypocritical. It's not the same. Chris, it would be the same. They would have the same stance. No, Democrats. Listen, listen. Klobuchar and Biden back then, not Biden, Klobuchar and others back then were saying, hey, you've got to have a full bench. You've got to have a full bench. Because of what the Republicans did in 2016. Democrats didn't do that in 2016. If Democrats actually put the person, wanted the person that was in office now to do it, they would be making the same choice. They would be, they would, they would be consistent with their principles. I I, I mean, honestly, the the most I can get out of this, uh, perhaps you're more sophisticated in translating CNN than I am, but is that Don Lamone thinks that uh, Democrats would level up a Trump nominee for a vote if they were in charge of the Senate. Uh, They would, actually go through the process of a confirmation hearing. And Chris Cuomo thinks that uh, they would essentially take the position that Mitch McConnell and Republicans took in 2016. Uh, Okay. Well, I mean, uh, just a point of order. Once again, the difference between 2016 and 2020 was uh, articulated by Mitch McConnell during his remarks from the well of the Senate yesterday. So maybe this would inform Lamone and Fredo? Probably not. Others want to claim this situation is exactly analogous to Justice Scalia's passing in 2016. And so we should not proceed until January. This is also completely false. Here's what I said on the Senate floor the very first session, the day after Justice Scalia passed. Quote, the Senate has not filled a vacancy arising in an election year when there was a divided government since... 1888, almost 130 years ago. Here's what I said the next day when I spoke to the press for the first time on the subject. You have to go back to 1888 when Grover Cleveland was president to find the last time a vacancy created in a presidential election year was approved by Senate of a different party. As of then, only six prior times in American history had a Supreme Court vacancy arisen in a presidential election year, and the president sent a nomination that year to the Senate of the opposite party.
Yes, the divided government and the power resides that resides in the respective branches and uh, those enter- entities within the branches. Uh, this is too complicated for Don Lamone to grasp. Uh, I guess Andrew Chris, Andrew Chris, whatever, Fredo, is a bit ahead of him on that score. Uh, Mitch McConnell also maybe in advance of more chit-chatting between CNN anchors. Uh, responded to the issue of time. There's, you know, there's just not enough time. It's because it's so close to the election. You got 45 days. In 2014, the voters elected our majority because we pledged to check and balance a second lame duck president. Two years later, we kept our word. In 2018, the voters grew that majority on our pledge to continue working with President Trump, most especially on his outstanding judicial appointments. We're already hearing incorrect claims that there is not sufficient time to examine and confirm a nominee. We can debunk this myth in about 30 seconds. As of today, there are 43 days until November 3rd and 104 days until the end of this Congress. The late iconic Justice John Paul Stevens was confirmed by the Senate 19 days after this body formally received his nominations. 19 days from start to finish. Justice Sandra Day O'Connor, another iconic jurist, was confirmed 33 days after her nomination. For the late Justice Ginsburg herself, it was just 42 days. You get the point, and uh, Don Lamone does not. This is his uh, upshot in terms of not getting what he wants, the politics of throwing a temper tantrum. The politics, if I don't get my way, burn it all down. He should be on the street with Antifa, Don Lamone. We're going to have to blow up the entire system. And you know what we're going to have to do? No, I don't know. You know that. what we're going to yes, yeah. have to do? You just got to Honestly, from what your closing argument is, you're going to have to get rid of the Electoral College. Because the people... I don't see it. Uh, because the, the minority in this country decides who the judges are and they decide who the president is. is but that, you need a constitutional amendment to do that. And if Democrats, if Joe Biden wins, Democrats can stack the courts and they can do that amendment and they can get it passed. Thank you, Don Lemon. That's exactly what Dan Henninger said last hour in our conversation. Uh, stack the courts, eliminate the the Electoral College, Puerto Rican and Washington, D.C. statehood to stack the entire system to end the representative republic. That's the plan. And they can do it by constitutional amendment. If Biden gets in, that's Don, uh, Don Lamone's big wish, because they don't want elections to have consequences if they don't like the consequences. Coming up, we're going to talk to Dr. Joseph Ladapo from UCLA, mentioned his uh, excellent piece in The Wall Street Journal. Asking the uh, almost metaphysical question, are we going to live with COVID or for COVID? He'll answer it when he joins. Listen to the podcast of the show at danproftshow.com. Welcome back to the show, and uh, we talked with uh, Dr. Joel Zinberg from Mount Sinai in New York earlier in the program about uh, one CDC recantation, that about uh, COVID-19 transmission. Here's another one. Joseph Ladapo, our friend uh, Dr. Ladapo from UCLA's uh, David Geffen School of Medicine, writing in the Wall Street Journal, early testing among those infected with the virus may yield false negatives. And testing vulnerable adults and their contacts is far more valuable than testing healthy young adults. 
The CDC now recommends focusing tests where they are likely to yield the greatest public health benefits. That was true right up until they didn't. And they recanted on that under political pressure from the D.C. press corps because they're aghast at uh, prioritizing scarce resources. They don't want to live in the real world. They want to live in the zero covid cases is acceptable utopian world, which is unachievable. For more on this, we're pleased to be joined by the aforesaid Dr. Ladapo, Joseph Ladapo. Thanks for joining us again. Appreciate it. Hey, thank you. Thanks for having me on. So, um, you know, you CDC had a point and you had a point about the CDC's point, And then that point was taken away. <laughs> that's exactly what happened. And uh, yeah, yeah, that's what happened. That's what happened. Uh, it was, uh, in my opinion, it was unfortunate. And I think you really summed up the um the reasons why it was um, it, it was a sensible change to make, uh, but it's tough times right now. And I'll add that I'm speaking for myself and not on behalf of UCLA. Right. Um, yeah, I'm sure you don't want the Dr. Scott Atlas treatment over there. I get it. Uh, so your, your piece in the journal, I, I like the way you frame this. You said, you know, we can basically decide that we're going to live with coronavirus, with COVID-19, or we're going to live for COVID-19. Develop that for us, what you were getting at. Yeah, I think, you know, I'm, I'm glad you liked it. And I think a lot of people got it in it just really intuitively, which is that there is a difference. And when you turn your world and your life upside down for something, you're living for it. And when you try and move forward with your life and uh, with your life and, you know, do those things and allow other people to do those things that allow life to be meaningful, the reason, you know, we're all here in the first place, then you're living with it. And we're seeing a lot of the living for it. And, um, and it's, it's, it's incredibly harmful. I mean, it's, you know, people are living for it because they think it's going to help them preserve life, but it's also costing us life at the same time. When uh, when you talk about uh, living with it, uh, you you sort of segment uh, uh, our COVID-19 experience and uh, awareness of the outbreak into phases. And you talk about the lessons we can learn from the phases we've already experienced that may help us to live with instead of for. Can you give us an example? Yeah, I definitely can. So, you know, it is, it really has been phases and, you know, and I was, I was hopeful in what I wrote, but, um, but realistically it's a really, we're in a deep hole and it's, it's hard to, to psychologically to spiritually get out of it. So in the beginning, you know, with the first phase, uh, we have the option of choosing sort of briefer shutdowns, allow, allow our hospital systems to, to build capacity, do whatever critical things we needed to get done um, to to be able to have enough have enough um, health capacity versus just you know prolonged shutdowns and lockdowns, no end in sight, um, you know no 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 boundaries, and we chose we chose the latter. And then kind of when we came out of that phase and um, we had the opportunity of sort of opening up in a way that was balanced and still allowed people to, um, you know, sort of manage COVID risk while still being able to, to live their lives, which is, you know, by the way, really important versus, you know, clamping down on the ways that people could live their lives um, for this pursuit of, as you said, very, you know, very, very accurately, this, 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 um, it's a ridiculous goal of zero transmission. We chose the latter again. I mean, not only is it unachievable, but it's really costly to go down that path. 
And we're now at another point where we're, 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 we're in another decision point. You know, things have states, many states have had their outbreaks. They're coming down. And, um, and you know, the, the fear is still there, but sort of some of the edge has decreased. And you know, not too far into the future, um, we're going to have a vaccine, at least one. We're going to have, um, um, you know, we're, we're going to have more, more availability of rapid testing. And so there's possibility for doing this differently, but we're in a deep hole and we probably won't do it differently. Uh, I want to talk a little bit more about uh, those trade-offs, which is essentially what you're talking about, the, the, you know, the risk portfolio, understanding what the, the risk is, uh, making a proper risk assessment, understanding what the risk versus uh, doing one thing versus the risk of doing something else. But there's risk in both directions, which doesn't seem to be acknowledged in certain quarters. More with Dr. Joseph Ladapo, Associate Professor of Medicine at UCLA's. Uh, David Geffen School of Medicine right now. The more you listen, the more you'll know. This is this is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the program. We're talking with Dr. Joseph Ladapo. He is an associate professor at UCLA's David Geffen School of Medicine, talking about this uh, question of living with versus living for COVID-19 and the uh, opportunity we have to learn from the phases of this pandemic that we've already experienced on a go-forward basis and the question of what is it we have learned and could ultimately deploy in terms of understanding you uh, make the point that um, critics of living with COVID suggest that all attempts to stop COVID-19 transmission are worthwhile, no matter how small the benefit or how high the cost. Increased public recognition of sensible policies will steer us away from destructive decisions fueled by fear. Boy, that fueled by fear phrase seems to be really dominant here. And as is your point, that there's just no willingness to understand that trade-offs are to be made here like they're made in every other decision we make in life. Of course, that's been the issue from the very beginning. And it's crazy. I mean, we are adults. You can't live in life without realizing that there are trade-offs. But somehow we completely turned a blind eye to it in the beginning, which most people didn't really recognize. A few people did. Fortunately, I, for example, wrote an article in the USA Today back in March on in the week that California shut down. I was working in a hospital that week, actually, and had some patients with COVID-19 and sort of felt the descent of this blanket of fear and panic coming down in this state and around the country. I get it. It was, it is really frightening and scary for many people, which is, you know, obviously completely reasonable. What's not reasonable is completely turning a blind eye toward to what our choices based on this fear are costing us. And they've cost us tremendously. The benefits that we've accrued could have been gained at lower cost, and they're still costing us. This is what's happening with children not being in schools. I'm a father of three little boys. It's completely nuts, and I, there's no way that history will look at it favorably. It's an enormous cost for the, the children are bearing. It's wrong. It's mean. It's, um, it's cruel, and somehow we're still and, willfully doing it. Yeah, I think, I think that's right to call it cruel and mean. Um, you know, it's fear-fueled, and you almost always make the wrong decision when you make it rooted in fear. But it's also uh, dishonest on some levels, too, and 
I mean, look, I, I, this, Dr. Craig Spencer, who's the director of global health and emergency medicine at Columbia, I mean, he, he makes, in, in addition to now just being worried about case counts rather than anything related to the severity of the infection, moving the goalposts in that way, now false comparisons. Uh, Craig Spencer, who's also an emergency room physician, compared COVID to the original SARS and MERS, pointing out that both illnesses can have long-term impacts and yes, that's true. But SARS and MERS are um, caused by coronavirus are caused by coronavirus, so they seem reasonable. But they're far more dangerous, SARS and MERS, uh, than COVID nineteen. The uh, virus that causes MERS had a fatality rate more than a hundred times that of COVID nineteen, for example. And so, when you make those false comparisons, you're doing so. It's hard to say with this level of sophistication. You're doing so ignorantly. You're doing so dishonestly. Yeah, I hear you. I mean, he's a, he's obviously a smart guy, and um, he probably knows uh, much more about um, about those other viruses than I do. You know, at the end of the day, we're here right now. We know what we're dealing with, and we don't need more information to be able to make good decisions right now. We have enough information. We know a lot about risk. We know who is very low risk, and we know who's very high risk. And we know that these decisions we're making are range anywhere from being costly to extremely costly, right? For the kids, for people who've, you know, had their dreams wrapped up in educational attainment or, um, or, or their businesses, or even, you know, athletes who aren't being allowed to play sports that they've dedicated so much of their lives to. So the costs are whatever happened in the past with whatever pandemics or epidemics in the past, it's pretty irrelevant to our ability to make good decisions right now. Well, in addition to that, too, just even the way we talk about risk, like low risk and high risk, it's like a metaphysical low risk versus very, very, very low risk. I mean, you uh, make this point uh, in this uh, report in the Annals of Internal Medicine study. The infection fatality rate non-institutionalized persons under 40 was one one hundredth of a percent, uh, like, uh, you know, on the order of getting struck and killed by lightning, compared with one point seven percent among people older than 60. So that's nearly a 200-fold increase under 40 versus over 60, but it's still less than 2% chance for the infected over 60. I mean, this this whole thing about, you know, one person has COVID, we all have COVID, I'm just as likely to die, as, uh, that's, that's just not true. Yeah, and, and you know, you're, you're absolutely correct. And um, fortunately, there's a lot of um, <laughs> uh, what really must be magical things happening among many academics and public health experts right now in denying that these magnitudes of difference in risk aren't important. They are incredibly important. Um, they're important just in and of themselves, and they also are important because they can inform health policy. Um, and it's a concept that I think regular people get because it makes sense um, that that there are populations that um, that are just at so much higher risk and populations that are so much lower risk that, you know, when you have active community transmission and we know that the number of actual cases and in, in, um, when it's been studied is anywhere from, say, 6 to 24 times. And, and early in the pandemic, I think estimates were more like 40 or 50 times. 
there's just there's there's clearly active community transmission and you're picking up a fraction of it and and it's not it's it's unlikely to be possible to to change that substantially in this country so if you're in a place where um you're either really early in the pandemic and um or you're in a country that has the the um the will or the resources to literally sort of almost out there. And that, you know, that changes the calculus, but we don't we don't have that here. We're not going to have that here. Um, you know, people. Um, that there are many people who value liberty and their independence and their right to prioritize whatever they want to prioritize more than they care about our mayor's interest in testing everyone, mm. and they're not going to participate. And you can't. You're not going to have that here. So you. It would be better to to make the best of what you do have, and um and and um and part of doing that is 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 just recognizing that there are people who you know we should be offering more protection to even more than we're currently doing, and there are people that we should probably be leaving alone. <laughs> well, well, we appreciate uh, your clarity of thought in response to the magical thinking I think you correctly describe. He is Dr. Joseph Ladapo, Associate Professor at UCLA's David Geffen School of Medicine. Dr. Joseph Ladapo, thanks for joining us again. Appreciate it. Hey, thanks so much. Take thanks. care. Listening to the Dan Proft Show on the Salem Radio Network. Welcome back to the show. Picking up on our uh, conversation about uh, the Supreme Court vacancy uh, earlier in the hour with both John Malcolm and then uh, my commentary and that dizzying exchange between Fredo and Lamone. Uh, it is worth noting a couple of things. One, for that um, obnoxious, hateful cad, according to the D.C. press corps, who occupies the uh, Oval Office. Compare how President Trump has handled the passing of Ruth Bader Ginsburg with how uh, those individuals who would characterize the president, as I just did on their behalf, uh, characterized or, or responded, I should say, to the passing of Justice Scalia. For example, David Ehrlich of Rolling Stone in 2016. So if the news about Scalia is true that he had passed away. How long do we have to wait until we can openly not be sad about it? Uh, or more Ehrlich, when you go to harass women outside of a Planned Parenthood tomorrow, be sure to hold your fetus poster at half-mast out of respect. Charles Finch contributed to the New York Times, Slate, the Washington Post. I mean, if you don't want your death politicized, don't lead a repugnant and profoundly influential political life. Comedian uh, Moshe Kasher, representative from entertainment, of course, just to make sure I understand your argument, you want me to show respect for the death of a hateful man who disrespected so many lives? Mm. Just a you know, point of order in terms of who is, who, uh, is the obnoxious, hateful person. Mm. Uh, on a substantive matter, a more substantive matter on policy, John Yu, our friend from the University of California, Berkeley Law School, is a law professor there, as you know, been on the show many times. Uh, he uh, considers what a conservative Supreme Court majority could mean on a variety of issues. And uh, he concludes this. Uh, Justice Ginsburg took the leading part in the constitutional revolution on gender, for example, the VMI case that we discussed yesterday. Her passing may create the opportunity for the court to shift toward greater equal treatment of religious, 
colorblind and economic rights as well in um, reverse order, uh, finally overturning Obamacare in toto, uh, economic rights. Uh, colorblind, he is referencing uh, the uh, challenge to Harvard's obvious use of race in its admissions policies, discrimination against Asian Americans in its administration, its admission policies, and that's weaving its way to the court. And then on religious liberties, there's a, a case on the docket this fall, Fulton v. Philadelphia, uh, that uh, he argues could finally restore religious freedom to the same status as other rights enshrined in the First Amendment. He uh, goes on to just add, for, for 20 years, the court has experimented with a regime that allows government to subject religious groups to inferior protections than those granted to those who exercise the rights of speech, press, and assembly, or other First Amendment rights. And it was Scalia who introduced this religion-light approach, and Ginsburg who continued to defend it, a new conservative justice, St. Amy Coney Barrett could give conservatives the confidence to overrule this misbegotten effort to downgrade the right of religious minorities. Uh, so uh, it's uh, consequential, not just in terms of impact on the November 3rd election, of course. It's consequential in terms of uh, our full freedoms as Americans. It's enshrined in the constitutions, and John Yu helpfully reminds us that. This is great. This is the Dan Proft Show. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers, and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft, and this is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome to another edition of the Dan Proft Show. Thank you so much for joining us. You can follow us, danproftshow.com. That is the website. You also find podcasts there, as you do on Spotify and iTunes, Twitter, at Dan Proft and at Dan Proft Show. As uh, the world trends in the direction of no irony and no humor, to borrow from the sainted William F. Buckley, P.J. O'Rourke is uh, standing athwart yelling stop, or at least stop making my parody into reality. P.J. O'Rourke has a new book out, A Cry from the Far Middle, Dispatches from a Divided Land. P.J. O'Rourke, noted political satirist, editor-in-chief of American Consequences. And again, the book, A Cry from the Far Middle, joins us now. P.J., thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Glad to be here. Now, do we need to put a warning label on this segment the way that HBO is putting a warning label on Blazing Saddles so you understand the plot you don't get lost in it? You don't understand where the jokes are? <laughs> I think we can probably safely dispense with a safe space trigger warning. I'm not out to offend anybody. Uh, everybody else seems to be doing such a good job of offending everybody else that I feel sort of out of work. Oh, really? You're not yeah. a, You're not out to offend anybody. You write, what this country needs is fewer people who know what this country needs. You're out to offend everybody. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> but I think we'd be better off with fewer uh, opinions, especially political opinions, including probably my own. You know, it's time for everybody to shut up and go home. Thus writing the book. Now, do you regularly post on uh, Facebook and no, Instagram no, and uh, Snapchat? No, save me. I, I consider social media to be looking up the light that shines out the devil's hindsight. I mean, who, who's, whose bright idea was it to put every idiot in the world in touch with every other idiot? I can't. Uh, you know, I, 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 I got three kids. One of the few basic lessons we tried to teach them was not everything that pops into your mind has to pour out your mouth. You know? <laughs> Are you ready to write the eulogy for uh, capitalism and small-l liberal society? 
I do venture into that and the death of classical liberalism in, in the book. I think it's more of a warning than an obit. I hope it's not gone, but you know, people got to realize that free markets and free people, responsible people, equality before the law, democracy is, you know, hedged around with protection of, of people who are in the minorities and so on. This has brought a fabulous life to every country where it has been attempted. We don't want to let loose of that. The result could be really disastrous. And is there a, a proper amount of self-flagellation by you on behalf of all the OK boomers in in the country in terms of what uh, they have wrought over the last 50 years? Yeah, ours has not been a pretty generation. I mean, we were raised in, in this, this sort of glorious boom that came after World War II, and we are just spoiled rotten. And not only that, but we won't get out of the way, myself included. Here I am still writing books, you know, when it should be turned over to, 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 to younger people. Um, and we're gobbling up all the Social Security and Medicare benefits, and we're heaping up this huge burden of debt on, on future generations. And uh, no wonder they're mad at us. Well, you know, this whole idea, oh, millennials just being kids, you know, Lenin and Marx were kids once, too. You know, so the trend lines are a little bit disturbing as opposed to just relegating the, to this, uh, you know, sort of uh, utopian kids with their you know fanciful socialist ideas, particularly when you see it uh, play out the way it's playing out on the streets of America's big and not so big cities. Yeah, well, that is very disturbing, although, of course, as I'm not only old enough to have experienced the 60s, I'm old enough to have in my small way caused the city. You know? <laughs> finally, we found the responsible party. Right, yes. right. Yeah, I'm the one that's willing to put my hand up and say, yeah, I did that. And it was really stupid. The country is very divided now, but it was really much worse during the 60s. We had this horrible war going on, and we had just, just truly terrible riots in, in, in our, our inner cities. We had all these idiot war demonstrations. I say idiot, not because I was in favor of the war, but because our idea of trying to stop the war was to dress up in a bunch of clown clothes and act like morons, <laughs> um, thereby probably prolonging the war for at least a couple of years. The other thing, too, is it seems like uh, the 60s was never really resolved in this sense um, that uh, as Shelby Steele has said uh, in, in advance of this new documentary he's done with his son on Michael Brown and Ferguson, that slavery is not the original sin of America. It's the idea of race as a means to power is the original sin. And so now, you know, the 60s uh, in the 60s, the Civil Rights Act and uh, the Voting Rights Act and some of those measures to to end Jim Crow and cure the institutional inequities in this country, which were good. Now we have it going all the way to the other side of the spectrum where the claim is being made that um, based on my identity, race, gender identity and so on and so forth, I should be in power. I am entitled to these things at your expense. And that's just as dangerous now as it was in the 60s, as it as it was in uh, uh, previous generations. Yeah. And if you codify any of that stuff into law, you're just sort of guaranteeing a, 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 a hatred. You know, it's always uh, important to remember that uh, uh, America, America is like not like a big happy family. You know, I mean, uh, people came here. Uh, 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 we've never gotten along. I mean, you know, some people came here as a sort of scam. Some people came here as religious refugees. 
Some people were dragged here involuntarily as slaves. Uh, some people were pushed here by poverty and bigotry, bigotry were, and were very different from each other, and we've never really managed to get along. And if we, if we accentuate our, our differences, or I should say when, when we accentuated our differences by having Jim Crow laws and so on, the result was absolutely disastrous. And if we codify them you know, in the name of social justice, the results could be just as dangerous. I mean, this is a, a big group of people that has never gotten along, including the original inhabitants, uh, uh, you know, who were reduced by disease and demography to being foreigners in their own country. Uh, and uh, somehow we took this mess of angry, argumentative people and turned it into the richest, most powerful, and arguably the freest country ever in the history of the world. Let's not lose that. Uh, in uh, a previous book that you wrote was Eat the Rich. In, uh, in this book, A Cry from the Far Middle, you say it's uh, time to make the rich people uncomfortable again. Are you softening on the rich? <laughs> no, I'm still wishing I were one of them. <laughs> uh, no, but I do think that, uh, you know, one thing that kept class envy, you know, kept, kept uh, 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 envy of rich people at bay was how uncomfortable rich people always looked, always dressed up in stiff collars and neckties <laughs> and having to wear top hats and so on. And when you get like one of the richest people, you know, when you get the richest person in the entire world showing up in his bomber jacket, you know, or, uh, or, or in the case of Mark Zuckerberg, you know, uh, I'm wearing his underwear in public. Uh, you know, and you're thinking, like, God, not only do they have all the money in the world, but they get to be slobs just like we do. Now, that's wrong. Yeah, you know? yeah, that is too much egalitarianism. I agree yeah, with that. Yeah, so I, I think rich people should have to go back to wearing top hats because they make really good target for snowballs. And also, you know, back to all the rest of all the manners, all the little forks on the table, you know, all the different glasses that you can't figure out, all the stupid sports like drowning themselves in yacht racings and breaking their neck at polo. They got to go back to all that. Yeah, you like your rich patrician, and that's the way it should always be. Monopoly, right? Rich. Right, because we then we really don't. God, they don't eat dinner until eight. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and uh, so your take. We've got an election coming up. I don't know if you've heard. Um, yeah, I, yeah, I did. I did hear a little. Heard, heard a little something about that. And uh, do you share some of the uh, more dire predictions about uh, the? chaos that will ensue post-November 3rd, regardless of outcome, whenever that outcome um, may come? You know, no, I really don't think so. Um, I, I, I do, I don't know, you know, I've been so wrong about American politics for so long. Since the beginning of the Trump campaign, I have just been like, you know, I'm like the opposite of a compass needle, whichever way I'm pointing, just go the other way in safety. Um, the, uh, uh, but, but I honestly think that, you know, the pendulum will swing, Trump was basically sent to, 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 to Washington because people were very frustrated with government. They sent him down there to blow things up. He's done a pretty good job. And we're going, ooh, is that a good idea? You know, maybe I should have thought that through a little bit more. And um, I think the pendulum's going to swing the other way, probably too far, getting Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez as Secretary of the Treasury or something. <laughs> uh, you know? And it'll 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 be a mess. I think the the uh, Biden will win, and the Democrats will probably take the Senate, and then we'll have another like two years of screaming and yelling. But I think, in a way, um, uh, uh, America's been pretty good about these about our idiocy dying down. It flares up 
hot and fast, and it tends to die down pretty quickly um, um, and, and as well. So, uh, I've been reading P.J. Works since Parliamental Horrors I read in college, and uh, always entertaining. I'm, I'm glad you're still writing books. Uh, cry Me from, too. <laughs> uh, yes, A Cry from the Far Middle, Dispatches from a Divided Land is P.J. Works' latest offering. He's also the editor-in-chief of American Consequences. P.J. Works, thanks for joining us, and best of luck with the book. You are very welcome. Exposing political fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to The Dan Proft Show. The CDC, Centers for Disease Control, saying uh, that uh, COVID spreads through uh, particulate matter in the air. I'm sorry, no, it doesn't. Accidentally posted to the website. Tell me how that happens accidentally. Don't press that button. So is uh, Dr. Redfield there on the uh, back end of the website posting content himself? I don't understand the experts. These are the same experts that told us no masks needed for uh, healthy people in the spring and then... Redfield testifying before Congress the other day saying that wearing a mask is more effective in preventing COVID-19 than a vaccine would be, which is lunacy. It's the politicization of science. And it's people like Redfield trying to cover his derriere, I think, in his sinecure. They're behaving like politicians that are on every side of every issue. Uh, I agree with this, but I also agree with that. Uh, This is where adults have to come in and make real decisions recognizing trade-offs, but uh, that's not the position of the myopic. And uh, then you have this, of course, uh, the blaring headlines from CNN, promoters of an apocalypse. As doctors worry about a, quote, very apocalyptic fall, unquote, the CDC retracts info on how COVID-19 spreads. We may be in for a very apocalyptic fall. I'm sorry to say, Dr. Peter Hotez, dean of the National School of Tropical Medicine at Baylor College of Medicine, It's happening because we're forcing schools to reopen in high areas of high transmission. We're forcing colleges to reopen and we don't have the leadership nationally telling people to wear masks and to social distance and to do all the things we need to do. It's funny because you can make the same argument about uh, many European countries that had a light touch, the lightest of touch being in Sweden, but who reopened schools months ago and are not we're not hearing from their epidemiological professionals the same sort of apocalyptic predictions. And so what are we to make of uh, what we are to do? It goes back to what uh, Dr. Joseph Ladapo from UCLA School of Medicine wrote in the Wall Street Journal the other day, which is, do you want to live for COVID or do you want to live with COVID? For more on this, uh, such philosophical questions are pleased to be joined again by Slavoj Žižek, Slovenian philosopher, researcher at the Department of Philosophy at the University of Ljubljana, uh, Faculty of Arts and and author of the most of most recently pandemic exclamation point COVID-19 shakes the world. He's also authored Hegel in a wired brain. He is a neo Hegelian, which is where we part company, but it's fun to talk to him. Any, uh, anyway, Professor Shishak, thanks for joining us again. Appreciate it. Glad to be here. Thanks. You argue for a quote, global organization 
that can control and regulate the economy as well as limit the sovereignty of nation states when needed. Seems like a shift away from the market to more centralized planning, and we've seen that before. Well, I don't use on purpose the term centralized planning, but I'm just referring to, it's not a communist utopia or what, to what up to a point is already happening, my God. But but wait, I just to interrupt you and then I'll, I'll let you finish. But what's happening now, but you're also criticizing what's happening now, these government interventions in some respects. So now you're just arguing, it seems to me, that you want the same sort of interventions, you just want the interventions to take a different form. Yeah, but this interventions, maybe they are not done in the right way. You know what's the paradox? There is a famous video game, I forgot its title, where the dying hero says, we must, the point is not to change the world, the point is to leave the world, save the things we all like, our civil societies and so on, we must change some things. Change is necessary to keep the things we all like going. No, no, I understand, but I, I'm I'm trying to get a handle on what it is you think need uh, what what sort of change in the superstructure of society is required to generate the positive change that you seek, or I guess that we would seek. First, you would argue. I don't think even the, the superstructure is crucial. Okay, by superstructure you mean ideology in general. Here I'm rather a pessimist, more for the United States than for Europe. You know, when you have this clear-cut opposition, Trump or New Right Populist, whatever you call them, and whatever you call the other side, liberal center-left, and then as a third component, democratic socialists, I don't see any possibility of a big national reunification, reconciliation here. I think this is a fight where one side must win. Do you think it's a possibility of some kind of national unity, we all come together for some basic rules? No, I'm a pessimist here. If you could wave a wand, what would the this governing or global organization, quote-unquote, that you're referring to look like? How would it function? First, I would say more coordination within nations. Things like establish a body, it can be World Health Organization on another more efficient method. Almost everybody is telling us that the pandemic basically can be beaten only globally. This idea that you will have some countries which are like bubbles, living in a bubble, safe, others not, in the long term, it doesn't work. So I don't like to speak about central global organization because, of course, this opens other tremendous perspective of bureaucratization, corruption, and so on. I'm just talking about coordination in the sense that no part of a single society, no part of the world should be sacrificed as, okay, you are yeah, now out, we don't care what happens there. This is simple things, simple things like that. Then point two, to see state by state, not imposed by some central organization, that the pandemic crisis is linked to other crises. And I think I read recently in German weekly magazine Spiegel a report on how nonetheless these new fires in Australia, California, and so on do something different. The fires still now, forest fires and so on, well, they were over, and then the same type of plants regenerated. So these are these are voluntary associations of countries and nation states as opposed to, I mean, it's in the form of a UN or a NATO, something like this. I mean, because if you're not if you're not proposing something new, you're just proposing more coordination between countries. Well, we see how that plays out in some of these global organizations. The WHO would be another example to be pandemic related. 
And so, I mean, I, I don't know that 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 uh, has been, you know, particularly effective. Uh, th- those uh, those global institutions that are based on mutual interests and coordination. No, what I think is that sooner or later it will become clear that even single countries will get the point that cannot be safe alone, that you need connection. In Europe, this has become clear. Germany, for a certain time, Spain, they thought, okay, we can do it alone in a bubble. No, you cannot. I just think that if you connect this with ecological problems, with problems of racism, new poverty, economic wars, and so on and so on, Again, I'm not counting on some new moral awareness, like people will discover the common good. I hope that at some point it will nonetheless become clear, like with Extinction Rebellion and so on, that common good is also in your egotist interest. All right. He is Professor Slavoj Žižek, a Slovenian philosopher, researcher at the Department of Philosophy of the University of Ljubljana, uh, Ljubljana, Faculty of the Arts, and author most recently of Pandemic, exclamation point, COVID-19 shakes the world. Professor, thanks for joining us. Good luck with your book. Appreciate it. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show and uh, two uh, identitarian activists in Seattle offer an op-ed in the Seattle Times, a possible America, quote-unquote, begins with anti-racist training. It's nice to see somebody go on the record to actually try to defend uh, this uh, identitarian sophistry, I would describe it. Racial equity work is essentially American, say Glenn Harris and Julie Nelson, to officers at Race Forward, a national nonprofit dedicated to achieving racial justice. Racial equity work, quintessentially American, the product of communities coming together to devise innovative solutions to longstanding problems for and by the people. Sounds nice. In this historic moment, they write, when COVID-19, the COVID-19 pandemic, state violence against the black community, an environmental crisis and an economic recession are exposing the horrifying impact of racial inequities between white people and people of color. A new national consensus is building up from communities across the country. And to uh, support that contention, they offer their research of tens of thousands of government employees finds that nine out of 10 agree that it's important to examine and discuss the impacts of race. Well, that is a statement that requires a little bit more of a dig. They don't offer much more. But what about that, that uh, racial equity work is quintessentially American? It's just uh, communities coming together to uh, solve longstanding problems for and by the people. Let's put that question to our friend William Vogeli, senior editor of the Claremont Review of Books, visiting scholar at Claremont McKenna College's Henry Salvatore Center, and the author of Never Enough, America's Limitless Welfare State, as well as The Pity Party, a mean-spirited diatribe against liberal compassion. William Vogeli, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it. Good to be with you. Racial equity is quintessentially American. Uh, What's nothing to see here? 
Mm-hmm. It sounds like one of those uh, Trojan horse arguments. You lay your point out in the terms that are broadly acceptable to just about anyone. Nobody could disagree with that idea. But then once you get inside the walls, it turns out that racial equity means something far more demanding and uh, controversial than you were told uh, uh, the first time through. And this is uh, if you follow, it, uh, yeah. if you follow. Um, this popular polemicist, Ibram Kendi, mm-hmm. um, anti-racism means uh, that uh, every disparity between black and white and between all other identifiable groups is guilty until proven innocent. And that you have to work towards a society where every subset of the society, whether it's Fortune 500 CEOs, public school teachers, is an exact demographic miniature of the society at large. No, no society in history has ever met that definition. Uh, yeah, you uh, write about uh, Kendi as well as Robin D'Angelo's work, uh, White Fragility, her book. All disparities mm-hmm. uh, disadvantageous to black are entirely and solely the result of racism. There is, there is no possibility that uh, personal choices has anything to do with disparities. Um, it's so simple and simple-minded, uh, and yet it has a kind of appeal in that it um, it seems to to uh, tell people who want to believe this that a complex society is actually uh, things are much simpler than they appear. It's it's in a way it's similar to the thinking that goes into uh, conspiracy theories, mm. um, um, rather than believe that. Uh, the world is, is a messy, complicated place. The conspiracy theorist tells people uh, everything can be reduced to just this one factor. And the other point that you make, which is an important one, um, and that is the uh, the central arguments are unfalsifiable. Uh, you, mm-hmm. you you can never satisfy the the uh, uh, claim that you're not an oppressor because if you deny you're an oppressor, that's an indication you're an oppressor. Yeah, this this uh, term that's become sort of the uh, word of the year, systemic racism, uh, has this very fundamental problem. Um, the, the, one of the, the fundamental rules of science is that um, if you're going to make a causal uh, hypothesis, X causes Y, then there should be evidence that you can produce for and against it, and it should be falsifiable. It should be possible to say, wait a minute, uh, the, the evidence just doesn't back this up. But systemic racism is defined or mystified in such a hazy, amorphous way. It's, it's this pervasive thing that's, that's out there and affects everything in all of us. And yet when you try to pin it down as to what it does, how it works, the, its advocates never make that clear. And if it can't be falsified, it, that doesn't mean it's true. It means it's meaningless. Hmm. Yeah. Uh, when we come back, I want to go from something that is uh, standard free to this uh, construct you provided in an, another piece uh, in terms of making an assessment on the kind of job that uh, the federal government has done in America in responding to the COVID-19 pandemic providing an actual framework for analysis, something we can't do in the case of uh, social justice. More with William Bogelli, senior editor of the Claremont Review of Books, right after this. The more you listen, the more you'll know. This is is the Dan Proft Show. 
Welcome back to the show. We're with uh, William Vigeli, senior editor of the Claremont Review of Books, which is must-reading, a visiting scholar at the Claremont McKenna College's Henry Salvatore Center, and author of, uh, among other things, Never Enough, America's Limitless Welfare State, and The Pity Party, a mean-spirited diatribe against liberal compassion. And um, uh, uh, William Vigeli, you wrote this piece, Knowing, Choosing, Doing, uh, trying to provide some sort of framework to think through uh, a thoughtful assessment of President Trump and the Trump administration's response to to COVID-19. And I think it, it starts from this um, really important premise uh, that um, there is no such thing as this sort of omnicompetent government. And when you are trying to make an assessment of a government's response from the position of gov- the government officials have perfect knowledge and only one interest, and that is in uh, – eradicating the uh, virus in this case, stopping the spread in this case, and that implementing it is just as simple as saying, this is what we have to do and it's done. I mean, all of these sort Mm -hmm. of fallacies we bring to the table about how government uh, responds to crises, it reminded me of something that Barack Obama was famous of doing. He would make a speech and declare, this is how it's going to be. And then people would just assume, well, that's, hey, he just said it. Uh, There's legislation. (laughs) It was passed. So that's how it's going to be. Just snapping fingers. Uh, speak so, to knowing, choosing, and doing. It's obviously the coronavirus has, has been um, a terrible story this year, uh, caused great suffering. It's extremely difficult to specify what a philosopher king would have done, once, what somebody with perfect knowledge and perfect motives, how exactly he would have handled it. But as you say, the, the, the problem is, to, to sort of paraphrase former Secretary of Defense Donald Rumsfeld, you go into a pandemic, with the country, the constitutional system, the degree of knowledge, the bureaucratic structure, the political culture that you have. You don't just get to sort of invent new ones that you think will be exactly uh, well-suited to an emergency before it happens. And all of these factors made it difficult for any government, not whether Hillary Clinton had won in 2016, for any government to respond to a health crisis like the one that began in January or February of this year. Yeah, and the uh, the um, uh, you're right. To, the second uh, problem confronting real governments is that it's hard for the officials who formulate and implement the response to a sudden crisis to choose things. You know, say, oh, here's our response. You know, this is why we've had so many commissions and reports. We t- talked about uh, this in the first few months of the of the uh, of the outbreak. Well, we, we had this uh, this group in 2012 that uh, got together, sent former senators, people from public health, so on and so forth. And they produced a report. And then you go back 10 years ago and there were reports after each of the last few pandemics. And so there were recommendations from those reports and those weren't implemented. And it and it turns out that choosing what to, for example, fund uh, uh, administration to administration is not so obvious. Preparing is not so obvious, and the responses even in the moment are not so obvious. Most of your listeners are probably old enough to remember 1999 when the country was in a moral panic over Y2K. All our computers were going to freak out because they they couldn't figure out whether 01 slash 01 slash 00 meant the first day of 2000 or the first day of 1900. Mm -hmm. And there were there were articles telling us, you know, the uh, the food chain is going to break down. Um, bank balances are going to vaporize. Uh, it'll be, you know, violence and panic in the streets. 
None of that happened. Now, did none of that happen because the preparations we made in the late 1990s actually were adequate and dealt with the problem? Or did none of that happen because, it, in fact, the problem was never that big to begin with? Even now, we still don't, this is still a debated question. We don't know the answer to that. So if, if, if something like that isn't clear 20 years in hindsight, the idea that in real time as you're trying to deal with a new emergency, you can say whether this or that particular precaution is excessive and expensive and unnecessary or actually the very thing we ought to be doing, it's really hard. Well, and also, too, you know, in, in politics, you have to uh, understand what your opponents are going to do and say, and you have to deal with charlatanry of, of various sorts, including the, you know, I'm out here saving lives and you're just interested in filthy money. So, you know, I want to <laughs> I want to shut down the economy to save lives. And you're trying to do this balancing thing where you're keeping you're not keeping your eye on the ball, which is just saving lives. You're out there talking about businesses and jobs and who cares about businesses and jobs if you don't have a life for goodness sakes. Yes. Yes. When um, you know, I think it was 1993, Congress voted to um, give states the ability to raise highway speed limits about 55 miles per hour, something that had been imposed during the uh, uh, Arab oil embargo in the 1970s. Ralph Nader said that, um, Congress and President Clinton for signing the bill would have blood on their hands. You you leave yourself open to that sort of um, hysterical rhetoric. In fact, highway uh, fatalities have steadily declined since then, even though um, there are more vehicles on the road now than there were 27 years ago. And then the third problem, the, the doing piece of it, the implementation piece of it, uh, you make, uh, uh, among other points, you know, that uh, power is diffuse, even uh, even from the president, even within the federal government, much less from the federal government to state and local governments in our federalist system. And so, you know, because I decreed it, it shall be. It's not so easy in practice. It's odd that uh, for three years, uh, Donald Trump's critics were calling him a, um, a dictator and a fascist. Um, and then for the, the past six months, the, they pivoted. Um, without um, elaboration of why to the to the criticism that he wasn't um, enough of a dictator, basically, that uh, that that if he really cared about us, he'd be issuing orders and knocking heads together and making people do his will. You know, uh, this this is, I I think, a real problem. We, We we don't want a government 99 times out of 100 that um, especially a federal government that can issue commands like this. The, the New York Police Department has more personnel than the, uh, the FBI. The idea that the federal government has the capacity to, to make these, these kinds of enforcing decisions about where people uh, work and eat and, and uh, their, their, their social life and all of the things that are, are brought into play when you're talking about a highly communicable disease is simply... Um, uh, ignores the reality of our federal system. He is William Vigeli, senior editor of the Claremont Review of Books, a visiting scholar at Claremont McKenna College's Henry Salvatore Center, and the author of Never Enough, America's Limitless Welfare State, and The Pity Party, a mean-spirited diatribe against liberal compassion. Always enjoy your work, William Vigeli. Thanks so much for joining us. Nice to be with you. Got a black magic woman Got a black magic woman I've got a black magic woman Got me so blind I can't see You're listening to The Dan Proft Show On the Salem Radio Network
Welcome back to the show. And as we close out this Tuesday edition, how about some positive news from the world of sport? First, at uh, President Trump's rally in Ohio, the uh, honoring of those two uh, footballers from Little Miami, Brady and Jared, who are the uh, sons, respectively, of police officer. They had been suspended for carrying the thin blue line and thin red line flags onto the field before a game on 9-11, then reinstated, then actually awarded a scholarship from a uh, nonprofit called called Holiday for Heroes for doing what they did in uh, contravention of what the school told them they could do. Well, uh, they were recognized by the president of the United States. They're good looking kids. So I want to congratulate you. You become famous. They're going to go to Hollywood. They're going to become movie actors right now. How about that? From a suspended to reinstated to scholarship to being recognized by the president of the United States. Good stuff. Also good stuff from um, my beloved Pittsburgh Steelers. Although it's tougher and tougher to love any professional sports franchise, but Pittsburgh Steelers All-Pro Center Marquise Pouncey honoring a fallen Pittsburgh police officer on his helmet this past Sunday against the Broncos. He uh, took the field against Denver wearing Eric Kelly's name. Eric Kelly was a Pittsburgh police officer killed in the line of duty back in 2009 while responding to a call about two other officers being killed. This was after Pouncey and the entire majority of the Steelers wore Antoine Rose's name on their helmets last week. Rose was killed by Pittsburgh police in 2018 after police stopped his vehicle because it matched the description of a drive-by shooting suspect. Pouncey posting on his Instagram, I want to personally clarify what transpired Monday night in regard to having Antoine Rose's name on the back of my helmet. This is the person killed by police. I was given limited information on the situation regarding Antoine, and I was unaware of the whole story surrounding his death and what transpired during the trial following the tragedy. I should have done more research to fully understand what occurred in its entirety. My work with police, both in Pittsburgh and back home in Florida, is well documented. I don't always feel the need to highlight what I do with police departments, but I also want to make sure they understand I inadvertently supported a cause of which I did not fully comprehend the entire background of the case. I take responsibility for not doing more investigating into something that is sensitive to the community and his family, but it's a lesson learned as it relates to political issues that occur every day in our society. Moving forward, I'll make my own decision about what to wear on the back of my helmet. Make no mistake, I'm against racism, and I believe the best thing I can do is continue helping repair relationships between the police and their communities. My focus will continue to be on helping the police in our communities, and I will support making any necessary changes to help those efforts. Thoughtful statement from Marquise Pouncey. I mean, he is a teammate with Steelers left tackle Alejandro Villanueva, who honored the name of Alwyn Cashy on the back of his helmet. Cashy, Alejandro Villanueva, served our country in the armed forces, you remember, famously at Soldier Field when the Steelers wouldn't come out of the locker room to respect the national anthem. Alejandro Villanueva stood in the uh, the tunnel and uh, put his hand over his heart to uh, stand for the national anthem a couple of years ago when it was all the rage for people, started to be all the rage for football players to kneel a la Kaepernick. Alwyn Cashy posthumously awarded the Silver Star for heroism after his death at the age of 35 while on duty in Iraq. Some uh, positive examples out of the NFL. Got to take them where we can get them. Thanks so much for joining us again on this installment of the Dan Prof Show. Please do so again tomorrow. This is the Dan Prof Show.